Johnson. And this game is underway with a bang. This is where the lacrosse area gathers to talk Wisconsin sports. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Join in by phone or text at 796-2558. Now, here's Grant Bills. Hope you had an awesome weekend. Time to relax, unplug a little bit. That's very important in 2020. Unplug, get off social media, don't text people, don't email people, just put your phone away. Awesome weekend to get outside. A big shout out to maybe listeners that we have south and southeast of lacrosse. I'm talking about Coon Valley, Westby, Viroqua. I was down there fishing. I was on the Kickapoo, uh, Timber Coulee. Beautiful, beautiful area. Brought my little radio, was listening to the Brewers this weekend. It was perfect. It was awesome. Hope you had an excellent weekend as well. The Brewers had an okay weekend, left on a high note yesterday with a win. And the Bucks had a, well, they only played once this weekend. They lost on Saturday. I want to talk about both of these teams, both of these games. And we're also going to talk about college football today because that's the biggest news of the week so far. Although it's only four o'clock on Monday. College football might be teetering on the brink. This time tomorrow, college football might be canceled. We don't know. There's a lot of news, a lot of information flying around. But the next 24 hours is really going to tell us a whole lot more. That's why I don't want to dwell on college football too much today. I know it's the big news of the day, but I want to spend most of our time talking about the Bucks and the Brewers because there's so much we don't know about college football. And in the next 12 hours, even, we'll certainly know a lot more. So let's start with the Brewers. This is the Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. I appreciate you hanging out and tuning in. Funny thing about 2020 is as amazing as our weekends are, and I had a great weekend. Hope you did, too. Uh, Mondays always seem to hit us with a, a hard punch in the face of reality, right? Like a couple weeks ago, we enjoyed the start of baseball. The Brewers and the Twins are back and the Cubs. And everybody's back. And then Monday, okay, there's a Marlins outbreak. And we spent all day talking about that and absorbing that news. And then this weekend was great. It was beautiful. We watched the Brewers break out of their slump yesterday offensively. And then we get hit with the college football news today. So Mondays really have this tendency in 2020 to kind of punch us in the face Today was no different, but let's dwell on the good. Let's talk about the Brewers, who won yesterday. I think it's interesting, going back to what Craig Council said last week about Christian Yelich and his inside-the-park home run. Christian Yelich, or excuse me, Craig Council at the time, basically said, yeah, that's what's, that's what's funny about baseball. You know, as soon as we think we have the sport figured out, you know, it does something crazy and shocks us. Well, yesterday certainly wasn't expected. The Brewers had their ace. The Reds had their ace. Sonny Gray versus Brandon Woodruff. You thought, okay, pitchers duel. Both of these pitchers have been great. And, of course, it's the one game where the Brewers score nine runs, 12 combined runs between the two teams. Wasn't all to do with Brandon Woodruff and Sonny Gray. Woodruff was okay, and Sonny Gray was okay. But I wouldn't have exactly laid money on yesterday for these offenses to to break out and pile up a bunch of runs. Forget the starting pitchers, though. The Brewers' offense, it was due. In the last five games, they've scored one, three, eight, one, and two runs. That eight-run game certainly helps their average a little bit. They're averaging just shy of three runs a game in their last five. Not great. You're not going to win a whole lot of games that way. You'll win occasionally. Sure, Adrian Hauser pitched a shutout last week, and they won one nothing. That'll happen once or twice a year. That's not a replicable recipe for success. Averaging just slightly less than three runs a game, that's, that's not going to get it done. I know they won yesterday and looked good, and we enjoyed it because Christian Yelich and Keston here both got going, and, and we'll talk about that. I want to celebrate that and enjoy that. Coming up in about five or six minutes, I want to transition to talk about the good and talk about Christian Yelich. But I don't want to overreact to simply one game yesterday. I know it was yesterday's game, but they lost on Friday, they lost on Saturday, and they barely scored any runs at all. 
I don't want to overreact to yesterday and ignore Friday and Saturday. This team can't score runs. And I know Christian Yelich might get it going, certainly looking promising. Even Justin Smoke might get it going. But as of right now, and what we've seen so far, this offense is not good. And I think I figured it out this weekend. I think I figured out and got in the mind of David Stearns. And, and I now understand his thought process putting this offense together. And I'd like to share it with you. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. Either way, hit me up and let me know. 608-796-2558 on the five-star telecom talking text line. David Stearns, when putting together this offense, took the bullpen approach. That's what I'm naming it. The bullpen approach. What do I mean by that? Well, bullpen players are cheap. And there's a huge turnover in the bullpen every offseason, right? First base, third base, those typically stay the same. Left fielder typically stays the same. Relievers, new faces every year in the pen. They cycle through every single year through trades and through options up and down and just letting guys walk in free agency. Arbitration, it gets messy. There's a huge turnover in the bullpen. Typically, those players are not very expensive. Couple examples. Of the top 10 paid brewers, the most expensive brewers players on their roster, only two of them are relievers. Two of the top 10. And one is arguably the best reliever in the game, Josh Hader. So he's a little bit of an outlier. The only other one is Corey Knable, who's amassed a little bit of service time. I wouldn't call him a veteran, but he's certainly not young, right? He's certainly not being taken advantage of salary-wise by the Brewers. So bullpen players are cheap. That's detail number one. Detail number two is the big turnover. Bobby Wall, Eric Yardley, David Phelps, Devin Williams, all new faces in the Brewers' bullpen this year. Yeah, I know Bobby Wall was hurt last year. He was on the team, but still a new face. Bullpen players are cheap. And they are very, very replaceable. And they are replaced every single year. David Stearns took a bullpen approach to his offense this year. For example, in 2019, they paid Yasmani Grandal and Mike Moustakis $10 million for Moose, $19 million for Grandal. This year, David Stearns pays Avi Garcia $7 million and Sogard $4 million. Bullpen prices. Not big-name, high-priced players. But instead, replacement-level players that are cheap. Same approach you take with the bullpen. Let's talk about turnover. I said bullpens turnover every year, right? Well, what about this Brewers offense? Judd Jerko, Justin Smoke, Omar Navias, Eric Sogard, Brock Holt, Avi Garcia, Logan Morrison, who just got DA'd. Talk about Ryan Healy. So many new faces all added this year. Crazy, crazy turnover, just like you'd have in a bullpen. General managers in baseball take this approach to their bullpen every year. They try to cut costs, and they're not afraid to bring in new faces. Because it's a fairly low-risk, high-reward strategy, right? If everything goes well, all of these relief pitchers sync up and they're all pitching great at the same time, well, that team is really, really dangerous. You bring in a random guy like Jeremy Jeffress and Bobby Wall and maybe you pay for a Craig Kimbrell, all right? You get lucky and they all hit and they're all great and you have a great bullpen for that season. Well, that team's going places because having a high-level bullpen with a couple of great arms, you can really win a lot of games that way. But... If you don't, it's fairly low risk, right? If your bullpen blows, you can still win. The Nationals had a terrible bullpen last year, and they won the World Series. The Cubs in 2020, the Cubs cannot stop winning, except for when their games are canceled because the Cardinals had to go to a casino. The Cubs cannot stop winning in 2020, despite having a terrible bullpen. Like, Jeremy Jeffers is their best arm. Their closer, Craig Kimbrell, is a nightmare. And the Cubs are still winning, and they look really good. And no one no one is waving the, the, the flag on the Cubs saying, Hey guys, I know they're winning, but their bullpen sucks. No, we don't care because they're winning. And you can you can get over a bad bullpen if your starters are great or if your offense is great. And in the case of the Cubs, their offense and their starting rotation is pretty good. 
Taking the bullpen approach with a bullpen is a low-risk, high-reward endeavor. If your bullpen blows, you can still win. And if you get lucky, you get a great bullpen at a very low cost. It makes sense. The problem is, if you take the bullpen approach to your offense, could go really well, right? You could argue that David Stearns has taken the bullpen approach with his offense in little parts here and there the last couple of years. Like with Eric Thames. It's kind of a bullpen move. We'll bring this guy in, see if he hits. And he did, right? We'll hold on to Jesus Aguilar. We'll keep him on the roster, see if he hits. And he did. But when you predicate your entire offense on the bullpen strategy, meaning cheap guys, replacement level guys, just cross your fingers, they all hit. Ooh, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Now, luckily, the Brewers have an MVP in Christian Yelich, and they have a rising star, we hope, in Keston Hira, but a huge portion of their offense is based on these replacement-level guys that everybody is hoping, hoping that they turn it on. I I don't know. I don't know. A a good manager can play matchups and still win with a bad bullpen. I don't think this bullpen is great. Craig Council's figuring it out, but Craig Council's a great manager, so he can manage through a bad pen at times. Saw it last year with the Nationals. We're seeing it right now with the Cubs. Hell, a rookie manager in David Ross is managing the Cubs to wins with a terrible bullpen. It can be done. Play matchups, be smart. But a bad offense, there's no managing through a bad offense. There's there's not. You can try to plug and play the right guys, but if the option is Justin Smoke or Brock Holt, not exactly a great option there. You can play matchups all you want, but if the guys don't hit the ball, they don't hit the ball. You don't score runs, you don't win. David Stearns took the bullpen approach with the offense this year. Cut huge costs. Instead of paying $10 million and $20 million for Grandal and Moose, he said, I'll pay $7 million and $4 million for Garcia and Sogard. Thank God for David Stearns and the Brewers that Eric Sogard has at least been able to get on base. It hasn't been a complete nightmare. But you, you can't piecemeal an offense. You can't take a bullpen approach to an offense unless you get really, really lucky. And I, and I don't think the Brewers are going to get lucky with this offense this year. They'll win some games and they'll have days like they had yesterday where they score nine runs. It'll happen, but they'll have a lot more games where they score one run or two runs on one home run in the game, and that's it. Or they'll have games like they had last Wednesday where they only score one run, and they'll need to rely on their starter, Adrian Hauser, to go seven shutout innings. That's not a replicable recipe for success. That's the Brewers' recipe right now, is hope the pitching holds on and hope you can win with two or three runs. That ain't going to do it for now. Our offense could get hot, could get it turned on, and I want to give some possibilities and some reasons why I actually... Might be excited going into this twin series. And the number one reason is Christian Yelich. Let's talk about the MVP coming up next here on the Wisco Sports Show. Wisco Sports Show. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for tuning in. Bucks basketball. The pregame is going to get started at five. So our time is relatively short tonight. The Wisco Sports Show normally going to be on four to six, but with all the Brewers baseball, all the Bucks basketball. Sometimes we got to be flexible, and I will accept that gladly because I'm just happy to have sports back. I bet you are as well. Bucks Raptors tonight at 5:30. Giannis isn't going to play. I guess he had a procedure done on a tooth today. He had a, he had a toothache, which is odd. I, the next week in the bubble is is going to be weird because very few teams are playing for something. Still, a lot of the seating has been decided. Some teams have even been eliminated. And some teams just don't want to show their cards before the postseason. So it's going to be a weird week in the bubble as we approach games that actually matter. Uh, The Raptors looking like they might actually rest a couple of guys tonight, too. For example, Lowry, Van Vliet, and Ibaka are all questionable. 
I think Nick Nurse and Coach Bud both want to like get something out of tonight's game. They don't want it to be a complete waste, but they don't want to show their hand too much because chances are Raptors and the Bucks are going to match up in the postseason at some point. If you want to join the show, you can. 608-796-2558. I know we had a call right away to begin the show, and I just wasn't ready to take you. So if you want to call back, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a one-man show in here. I can't can't talk and man the phone at the same time. I'm trying to get the show going. Now, we kind of got our feet under us. We got our discussion going. So if you want to call back, I'd be more than happy to take you. Uh, Robin Stoddard texts in and says, I still want to know what the WIAA does if the Big Ten, which has UW-Madison, cancels their fall season. Rob, I'm not going to pretend like I know. There's a lot that needs to be decided in college football. Last night and this morning, it sounded cut and dry. Like the Big Ten was going to cancel, Pac-12's canceling, and the ACC was going to cancel as well. The SEC, we're still figuring some things out. I I don't know if it's that clear anymore. The next 24 hours, we're going to learn a lot. It It seemed like this was a done deal, and over the course of today, the backlash was huge from every big name coach, from every big name school, from every big name player. I I think this battle is is just getting underway. Hopefully it doesn't get ugly like baseball, but you know how college sports are. You get you get politicians involved. There's there's public money changing hands when it comes to college sports. This this is going to get messy. That's why I don't want to dwell too much on the college football news. We're going to talk about it coming up in about 10 minutes, Rob. But we just don't know a whole lot right now. I have some thoughts, some questions and some interesting takes I want to cover. But I don't really know if we know quite yet. I would guess the college football is going to get canceled because that seems to be pretty widely reported. But what that looks like, I I don't know. The details, I don't know. Now, you're asking about the WIAA, Rob. Uh, High school football, I think, is is just about buried in the state of Wisconsin. Now, UW-Madison, the WIAA, and the NCAA aren't connected. Now, you want to talk about the WIAC, the WIAC, which is UWL. They have already canceled fall sports. High schools in Madison have already canceled football. Teams in the Big 8. That kind of thing. Now, the WIA hasn't made a blanket statement yet. If you want a little clarity on that situation, I'd recommend you go to WK2iSports.com and listen to my interview with Holman head coach Travis Kowalski that I did last week. Uh, he provided some really interesting clarity about the WIA's involvement in this whole situation. Basically, Rob, this is the best way I can spin it. Nobody wants to make a decision. Mark Emmert doesn't want to make a decision. The NCAA president. The Big Ten commissioner, Kevin Warren, doesn't want to make a decision. The WIA doesn't want to make a decision. They want to leave it up to the school, the district, the county, the conference, because nobody wants to be wrong. And that's why this is such a mess. That's why this is such a mess. So, Rob, we're going to talk more about college sports coming up in 10 minutes, and we're going to hit it hard tomorrow. Uh, We're going to join or be joined by Zach Heilprin, our our reporter on many teams, but mostly the Badgers and NCAA. We'll talk to him tomorrow on the show. So I'd recommend you don't miss that, Rob, as well, because I think we're all going to get some clarification. Okay, that being said, let's talk about the Brewers for a little bit more because they do play the Twins last night. They won yesterday. The offense looked exciting. Like, it was fun. And I just spent the first 10 minutes of the show trashing the Brewers' offense. But, and I do think the Brewers' offense is trash, but there is one big reason to be excited. Yelich is heating up a little bit. He's getting going, and I don't know what heating up means in a 60-game season, but Christian Yelich so far has 28 plate appearances in August. It's August 10th. He's 6-for-20 with three home runs, eight walks, and eight strikeouts. Will Salmon astutely pointed out on Twitter yesterday his average exit velocity off the bat in August is 95 miles an hour compared to 89 in July. Man, they have statistics for everything. Remember, in July, Christian Yelich went 1-for-27, Six for 20 seems like a big step in the right direction. And he absolutely crushed, crushed 
that home run to center field yesterday, if you didn't see it, just put it off the panel up there in center field. Eight runs on nine hits. Now Yelich into center field. That one is way back and going to fly. Oh, my goodness. Hits the scoreboard. Christian Yelich bangs one off the Miller Lite sign. An absolute rocket. About to be outdone by Keston Hira. He hits one even further. Yeah, Hira and Yelich went back-to-back yesterday. So if you missed the game, uh, I'm not going to give you the whole rundown. There's not a whole lot you need to know. The Brewers won 9-3, to but it really got going in the sixth inning when they poured on a ton, a ton of runs. This is basically how the sixth inning went. 13 batters, 6 runs, 5 hits, 4 walks, and they turned a 2-1 deficit at the time into a 7-2 lead. Now in the next inning, Keston here and Christian Yelich went back-to-back on home runs to take the score from 9-3 to the eventual score, oh, 2-9-3 from 7-3. So that beginning didn't have home runs, but there was some home runs later in the game. Christian Yelich might just be getting himself going. That was a Prince Fielder-type home run, right? Putting it off the center field scoreboard, popping out a panel. Christian Yelich might just be getting it going. 6-20 to 20 so far this month. He's seeing the ball better. He's hitting it harder. He's getting on base. He's striking out less. I'll take all of that. 608-796-2558. That's the five-star telecom talking text line. Darren is calling in. And Darren, I would imagine that you are amped and excited and optimistic. And you're about to tell me that this Brewers offense is about to be red hot, right? Am, am I guessing correctly? <laughs> I can't agree with you there, man. But uh, they, throw these stats, they throw these stats like exit velocity. Mm-hmm. When Yelich was really, really at the bottom of the pile, he did something very intelligent. He put down a bunt when the shift was on. Tell me, and I think uh, Carney uh, made mention of this um, last week. Yeah. Why don't they do that a little bit more? What are your thoughts on that? Why don't the Brewers bunt more? I just, I, I don't think the situation matters. I just think it's they have a never-bunt philosophy, right? It doesn't matter if the shift is on or if they need to manufacture run. I think they just have... The mindset that they will never bunt. They're never going to give up an out, and that is that. And if you haven't seen it in extra innings with the with the runner on second base, Darren, I don't think you're going to see it at all. Like They, they just must have an anti-bunting policy no matter the situation. Well, with counsel in the dugout, you're right. Christian Yelich is paid to hit you know, the long ball. He's mm-hmm. paid to hit you know, doubles, triples. But you got guys like Sogard. Is he really going to put up you know, some power numbers for you? No. So why doesn't he drop down a bunt and, and leg it out to first? Get, get on base. Uh, he works the count. Uh, just looking for your thoughts on this. Yeah, Darren, I, and I appreciate the call. It's nice to talk to you because it's been a while. Darren, I used to see you at like when we had events and we had groups. Remember that when we could actually go out in public? Thanks, Darren, uh, for asking me. I love your point on Sogard, and I've, and I've said the same thing about Orlando Arcia. And, and the Brewers have a lot of hitters like this where they're not going to hit a lot of home runs. Now, they might produce some runs, you know, singles, doubles, Jason Kendall-type stuff. But Christian Yelich is going to rack up the home runs. He can swing for the fences if you want. Keston here can do the same thing, but this Brewers offense is filled with lots of hitters that don't hit the ball with a ton of power, and they would be wise, like you said, Darren, to put the ball in play and leg it out. Now, I think Eric Sogard has done that by getting on base via the walk, right? Eric Sogard hasn't been laying bunts down, but he has been walking like a madman, getting on base any possible way. Thank God he has, too, because I don't know where the Brewers' offense would be without Eric Sogard right now. Him and Ben Gamble, which is, I'm sure, exactly where we expected to be, you know, 13 games in on August 10th. Ben Gamble, for example, has been putting the ball in play. Heck, even Orlando Arcia. And I don't know if Orlando Arcia is never going to be a a finished product. I think he's always going to be a little bit of a wild card. 
uh, a stallion that can't be tamed, you know, that kind of thing. But Darren, I think you're onto something, and I don't think Christian Yelich is against getting up there in a slump and dropping a bunt down. Heck, I don't think Ryan Braun is against that. Orlando Arce or Eric Sogard. There's guys on this roster who are are very, very willing to drop a bunt down or, or you know, just send a little dribbler up the line to leg out an infield hit. It just doesn't come in the form of a strategic bunt. I don't think Council's ever going to order it. I think he's okay with his players going up there if they see something they like. I'm going to drop a bunt down then. But I, I just don't think it's ever going to be something that's ordered from the dugout. I, I don't think that's how the Brewers work. I don't think that's how most of Major League Baseball works right now. But this offense needs to get better. I, I pointed out in the first 10 minutes of my show, they're averaging 2.8 runs in their last five games. Now, if you take out the one eight-run game they had last week, not counting last night, their last five games were one run, three run, one run, two runs, two runs. Now, that eight spot helps bump that average a little bit. Yesterday, they scored nine runs. Put that aside, this offense has still not been great. They do have room to improve. I I think Christian Yelich getting going is step number one. Step number two, we might have got a sneak peek at yesterday, and that's Justin Smoke. Justin Smoke is hitting 128, and he's striking out at a rate of 44%. That's that's terrible. I'm not here to defend Justin Smoke. And he's been trashed defensively, too. So there hasn't been a whole lot of good from Justin Smoke. But yesterday, maybe we got a little bit of a peek at what kind of impact he can have if he ever actually starts to hit the ball. He went three of five and gave us a glimpse of maybe what this Brewers offense can look like. If he strikes out less, walks a little bit more, his walk rate is about 2% right now. So that gives you an image of how effective Justin Smoke has been. He's been terrible. But if he gets going, that helps out Yelich. That helps out Hira. And I think that butterfly effect is felt through the lineup. When hitters are seeing more pitches and forcing pitchers to work, that helps out everybody. Last week when the Brewers started beating the White Sox in what would have been their third game of the series, I came on the air the next day and said, look, you got to be active. You got to get on base. You have to force a pitcher to work. You can't go up there and strike out on three straight pitches because that doesn't help anybody. Even if you're getting a single and you never come around to score, that allows the pitcher to work harder, allows other hitters to see more pitches, and it allows Christian Yelich, who's in a slump, to get more at-bats. And yesterday was a very similar game. Just activity. They're constantly making pitchers work which helps every hitter, one through nine, DH to left fielder. It helps everybody. Justin Smoke is a big piece of that. As is, You know who else is? Omar Nevaez. And Omar Nevaez is in the starting lineup again tonight, which I don't understand. Give me Manny Pena. Omar Nevaez is hitting 179. I hate to be this guy, but I was told by many people, many people on Twitter and texters to this show who hated my pessimistic attitude towards the Brewers. I was told Omar Nevaez was going to be 85% of Yasmani Grandal and only needed the short left porch of Miller Park to be an all-star. Where did those people go? Where have you gone? I got got the phone right next to me, 608-796-2558, because he has been terrible. 179, and this was the the offensive-minded player that was supposed supposed to replace Yasmani Grandal. If he gets going, all right, well, that's a big boost for the Brewers' offense. But until he does, give me Manny Pena. What's Council's hesitance to play Pena? Pena's a really good player. And I get, like, you don't want to DH your only other catcher when you have your starting catcher in the game, even though I've never, like, when have you actually seen a catcher get hurt? And knock on wood. But this happens every time. A manager will pinch hit their second catcher, and the Broncos will be like, oh, no. Oh, now they're out of catchers. Who's the backup? When has that ever been a problem? When has the catcher ever gotten hurt? And we've needed to put in the emergency catcher once a year in the entire MLB? Give me Manny Pena. I want him. 
Offensive side, we got Hauser going against the Twins tonight. Adrian Hauser is my second favorite pitcher right now behind Brandon Woodruff. I, I think he's a beast. He doesn't get the recognition that Burns or Peralta does, but he's been grinding the last couple of years. Whatever the Brewers have needed from a bullpen, starter, spot, starter, opener, you know, second starter, he's done it all. And he's finally in a position now that's stable and that he can just focus on pitching. And he's been great. So I can't wait. Brewers twins tonight. If we have time to talk more about the Brewers, I'll circle back to it. But I got to hit college football coming up because that's the big news of the day. And we should probably talk a couple minutes about the Bucks because that pregame starting at five. They play the Raptors tonight. And they had an interesting game against Luka Doncic on Saturday. I want to put that into perspective. So we got a lot to get to. Let's not waste time. More of the Wisco Sports Show coming up next. Wisco Sports Show rolls on. And my name is Grant Bills. Find me on Twitter at Keystroker Grant. Jason Stark of The Athletic on Twitter. Uh, just sharing a Major League Baseball press release that the Cardinals-Tigers doubleheader was supposed to start this Thursday. Uh, yeah, that's been postponed. Just drop the Cardinals from the league. They're done. They're done. They will have played five games Friday morning. The Cincinnati Reds, for example, will have played 19. That's a difference of 14 games. In a 60-game season, what is that? A quarter? 25%? Just drop them. They're done. They went to a casino, reportedly. And if that's true, they don't deserve to finish a season. Drop them. Because you can't go by winning percentage from a team that's played a drastically smaller number of games. That's not fair. That's not how it works. So screw the Cardinals. Whatever. Whatever. I'm not virus shaming. Like, look, if they walked out to get their mail and they got it, fine. But if they went to a casino, like has been reported, then I have zero sympathy. I have a negative amount of sympathy. The big news of the day is not the Cardinals. It's college football. There were rumors swirling around last night But Dan Patrick dropped the bombshell this morning, and this is what bit of news that most people went by. This is something very concrete. Dan Patrick, you can hear him every morning, 9 to 11 on WKTY. This is what he reported this morning. Here's the information I got uh, almost an hour ago. The Big Ten and Pac-12 will cancel their football seasons tomorrow. The ACC and the Big 12 are on the fence. The SEC is trying to get a delay to have teams join them. The SEC is looking at exclusive TV contracts. So once again, then I followed up with my source and I said, so the Big Ten and Pac-12 canceled tomorrow. That's what I'm told this morning. Three Big Ten teams that I've spoken with said it's done. And I followed up by saying, so the SEC might go alone and bring in other schools. That's the latest. They're trying to buy time, according to my source, to see if the ACC or Big 12 will go along with them. Now, some of this has been confirmed through reporting. Uh, Through a Detroit newspaper, Colton Bartholomew from the Wisconsin State Journal had it as well. It sounds like the Big Ten is set to cancel football tomorrow. Now, the details of how that came to be, some people were reporting that there was a vote. The Big Ten states that a vote never happened. The details between the SEC trying to bring in other schools, I don't know about any of that. The only thing that I've seen confirmed in multiple places and can confidently say that as of right now, or as of when it was reported earlier today, the Big Ten is canceling football tomorrow. Now, that might change. It might be changing right now, but I can confidently say that. Everything else, we'll see. And that's why I didn't want to spend the whole show on it today is because there's so much up in the air. I'd rather talk about the Brewers, the Bucks, stuff we know. We'll get to college football tomorrow when we have more concrete news. The timing of this all, however, is fascinating because if you try to put your mind back a couple weeks ago, we'd left college football for dead. We talked to our friend Colton Bartholomew, who used to be here, wrote for the Trib. Now he writes for the State Journal in Madison. He covers football. 
we were burying college football. Like, we were done with it. They're like, yeah, it's going to be sad, but yeah, probably not going to have a season this year. And then we moved on, and we stopped talking about it. And college sports kind of flew under the radar because we moved our attention to the Brewers and the Bucks and the NBA bubble and how that's going well and the drama in Major League Baseball. And meanwhile, the wheels of college football were still spinning. We, we had just discounted it. We're like, oh, okay, well, college is doing their thing, but they're not going to have a season. And then last week, they dropped their schedule. And, and I'm like, oh, uh, okay, we got a schedule. I guess that means let's go. We're going. We, like, I took it seriously. And now they're canceling? And now we're going to begin the fight for health and safety protocols and representation for players. Like, in what order were we supposed to do this? Because it seems backwards in every sense to me. Like, okay, well, we want to cancel it first and then make it happen and then do a schedule and then cancel it. And and now we're going to fight about the detail. No, 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 no. This should have been the, the opposite order. Like, this should have gone completely differently. Should have started with representation and health and safety. Then we should have want, went to a schedule then we should have decided through testing if it was going to work or not. This is all backwards. This is done so poorly. And players have been at camp since early June. I know Michigan, for a fact, Jim Harbaugh through a statement said, we've been fine ever since June 13th when our players got here. June 13th, it's August 10th. And, and, and now we're all of a sudden trying to decide whether or not football is a good idea. There's so much misinformation being floated by different parties to try to swing this narrative one way or another. I'm not going to get caught up in it. I don't want to dig too deep into any of this, but I have a few questions and a few points. None of these are based on anything too specific. I feel like all of these are valid points of conversation at this stage at 445 on August 10th, Monday, August 10th. Number one, it's very clear that the players want to play. Trevor Lawrence has spearheaded this movement. Justin Fields has got into it. I've seen content from many Badgers players on social media, statements, sentiment through tweets. They're like, we want to play. We want to play. Coaches want to play too. Jim Harbaugh put out a long statement today. Not about emotion, but on statistics. Testing numbers. The numbers of positives, which, spoiler alert, Jim Harbaugh makes it very clear that by the end of a couple of weeks of testing, got to zero. No contract tracing has been traced back to practice facilities or weight rooms. We're abiding with all of the guidelines that were put in place. They're working. Jim Harbaugh says, look, don't take it from me. Take it from the evidence. The statistics. We're fine. And then Ryan Day, the Ohio State coach, comes out and said, we want to play. Hashtag, we want to play. That's what everybody's saying. At what point must the commissioners listen? At what point does Big Ten commissioner Kevin Warren have to say, look, I don't think this is a good idea, but every coach and every player and every leader of every athletic department wants to do this. What kind of commissioner am I if I go against that? The outpouring of backlash on Twitter today has been outstanding. It has been unreal. Politicians getting, of course, because we, why can't we discuss anything in this country without politicians getting involved? Right? Jim Jordan in Ohio is like, we got to have football. It's like, well, maybe you should have thought of that a couple of months, right? Months ago, right? Maybe we should have started taking this virus seriously a couple months ago if you want a football that bad. It's been very frustrating. Everybody's coming out on Twitter and saying, well, I want football, including the players and the coaches. But leadership still says no. At what point does leadership have to bend the knee and agree? It's like, can Twitter really decide whether or not we have a college football season? Can't imagine, but it seems pretty unanimous. That's point number one. That's very interesting to me. Number two, this sentiment that every player seems to think they're safer playing football than they are at home. This, this intrigues me. I, I do not buy into this narrative, and it's one that a lot of media members and writers have just adopted. Well, you know, it's going to be, they're tested every day. It's safer for these players at school than it is at home. Really? Like, I get it. You get tested every day, and you have, Doctors and trainers available, but fine. However, if you're safer 
playing football in a huge group than you are at home, then you're doing a bad job at home, right? Like, well, I'll be safer at school. It's like, well, really, do you have a couple hundred kids coming through your apartment every night at home? Right? Like, do you not wear a mask when you go outside? Do you not try to stay socially distant? Are you not doing the things that we've said we should be doing? I don't buy into kids. Well, I'll be safer at school. Really? Ask the St. Louis Cardinals if that logic holds up. It's like saying, hey, I know we're sending kids into a minefield, but hey, they have the best doctors standing by if something happens. Well, it still doesn't mean you'd walk into a minefield. I don't get that line of logic, and it's frustrating because it's been adopted as common sense, which it's not. Well, they'll be safer at school. Really? 20,000 college kids are going to be safer coming back to the lacrosse area than they would be if they stayed in their parents' basement? I don't buy that for a second. Not for a single second. Now, you want to talk about home life and if they have a stable situation at home, that's one thing. But just strictly speaking, COVID, there's no way you're safer at school than you are at home. That, that logic, it's not logical. Couple other points I want to talk about. I, Albert Breer raised this point on Twitter, and I thought it was brilliant. And I don't think he's he's cheering one way or another. He just pointed it out. I don't understand how universities are going to bring back thousands of students, throw them into a dorm, throw them into classrooms and labs and cafeterias, and not test any of them, and be perfectly fine. But then say, well, we can't play sports, though. Huh? That doesn't make sense. This is what Albert Breer tweeted. I just want to read it to you because I, I, it was really brilliantly put. He says, I guess having, I'm having a hard time understanding how these university presidents can welcome tens of thousands of undergrads who aren't being tested at all back to campus and cram them into dorms and classrooms, but they can't protect a few hundred athletes. That is a big disconnect. I agree. Doesn't mean sports are safe, but it, I don't want to say that sports are way more dangerous than anything else college campuses are doing. That makes no sense to me either. This is something we're going to have to talk about more tomorrow, and we're kind of up against it, so we got to move on. we got to take a break and talk bucks. But this is the number one thing that I want to emphasize today, and I'll emphasize it again tomorrow. Do not get caught up in the social media trend of dramatizing the exploitation of college athletes. This makes me so mad. I think the NCAA is a somewhat corrupt system, and I think that corruption and the structural the structural issues of the NCAA are going to be very much exposed in the next couple of weeks when the football funding dries up. But people act like college football players are slave laborers. They're not. They act like they're not compensated at all. They are. You might not like that they don't get money for their name and likeness. Spoiler alert, most college athletes' name and likenesses aren't worth a whole lot in the first place. But people act like college football players are slave laborers and they're being exploited First of all, exploited is a very, very, very aggressive word. The system's not perfect, but the system does a lot of good for a lot of kids. They're getting an education paid for that they can come back and continue at any time. They're always welcome on campus to work out, right? You talk to any college athlete, they're always welcome to come back and train and work out and be a part of the team. You'll always have that connection. Ask Zion Williamson how his brand was enhanced while being at Duke, by the way or former UW-Madison UW basketball players who don't go on to play in the NBA but go on to do great things. Why? Because they have that name recognition at the university. They have that education. And while they were at school, they had everything paid for, food, money. They get a stipend to live. And if you don't spend all that stipend, put it in your retirement. You can start it right there at age 18 or 19. That's a luxury most kids don't have. Don't act like college football players and college athletes are slave laborers because a lot of people on Twitter and on social media, which is the loudest voice in the room these days typically, want to make it that way and want to over-dramatize it. It's, it's not. Don't get stuck into that. We can talk about the issues structurally in the NCAA all day long because there are many and they will be exploited very obviously in the next couple of days and weeks. But to, but to pound the desk and whine and cry and say that these college athletes are slave laborers, no, no, no. I, I don't want to hear it. 
I, I, I don't want to hear it because it's not true. And, and much like the narrative of kids being safer at school than safer at home in regards to COVID, it's been adopted as common sense and it's not. This idea that college athletes are slave laborers has been adopted by the masses as college sense and it's not true. It's not true at all. It's exhausting to me. I think it's dumb. When we come back, I want to talk about Bucks. I don't want to dwell on this anymore. We'll get back to it tomorrow when we know more details and we know for sure what's actually going on. Uh, I got to clear a couple things up against the Bucks or about the Bucks, and then we'll get ready for Bucks Raptors pregame starting in about 12 minutes right here on WKTY. More of the Wisco Sports Show coming up next. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. Bucks basketball pregame coming up in about 10 minutes. Justin Garcia will get the pregame rolling. He'll be joined by, of course, Ted Davis, the voice of the Bucks. Bucks Raptors will start at 5.30. And then the Brewers, their pregame starts at 6.35 over on our sister station, Wisdom, W-I-Z-M. That's 92.3 FM and 14.10 AM. So lots of options tonight, lots of sports. Enjoy it. Enjoy it while we can because college football is... Looking like it's on the edge. Who knows about the NFL? Heck, who knows if Major League Baseball lasts another week? They have another outbreak. Cardinals might never play a game again. You just don't know. So enjoy sports while we have it. Bucks over here on WKTY. Brewers on Wisdom tonight over on our sister station. Let's talk about the Bucks really, really briefly before we wrap up the show. Got to clear up some misconceptions because there's just been a lot of just a lot of misinformation spouted today on Wisconsin Sports Radio and even last week as well. People are freaking out about the Bucs. They're losing their mind. They're getting all bent out of shape. Over the last week, Wisconsin sports stations have been beating the one subject into the ground. The one same question, the one topic. It is, what's your concern level with the Bucs? Which is an inherently absurd question. What do you want people to call in and say, well, uh, 6.5 out of 10. Yeah, uh, uh, about 4 out of 10. Like, what is your concern level? What do we have, a meter? Like, I, I'm not freaking out about the Bucs. Nobody's freaking out about the Bucks. They took four months off. They're playing in one gym at Disney World. We're all trying to figure this out as we go, including every team in the NBA bubble. I talked about on Friday, like it's the teams at the bottom of the seating ladder that are excelling. And it's the teams at the top that are trying to figure this out. The Bucks and the Lakers and the Clippers are trying to figure this out. The Sixers are in shambles. A team that we're, oh, we all love the Sixers going into the bubble. Well, okay. Most smart people didn't. Their entire team got hurt, and they still don't know how to play together. They still suck, and on top of that, now they're hurt. But it's the teams like the Suns, who won again today, and the Thunder, who are relatively low. I think they're the sixth seed right now, although I'd have to check. Mavs are the seventh seed. Everybody loves the Blazers, and everybody loves the Pacers. It's the teams at the bottom, because the teams at the top are trying to figure things out. They're treating this as a preseason. They don't want to show their hand, and they don't want to get hurt. So stop freaking out. Don't worry about your level of concern. Don't worry about your level of worry. Because it doesn't matter. Because once the first round starts, this whole thing is going to get a lot more normal. It's going to feel a lot more normal. And the upper-seeded teams like the Bucks, the Lakers, and the Clippers probably will feel right back where they were in March when this thing shut down. Maybe. Maybe not. But it's pointless to worry about it in the meantime. The Bucks lost on Sunday, 136 to 132, or on Saturday, to the Mavericks. There, there's like two tiny takeaways. If you're really looking for something to take away from this game, two things. Pat Connaughton is the best player on the Bucks bench right now. Right now. That could change going into the postseason. But right now, the Bucks bench has no life. And they're shooting terribly, at least from three. Dante's shooting 22%. Corver's hitting 35, which is low for Corver. Corver shouldn't be playing anyways. George Hill's shooting 25%. 
Marvin is shooting 22. Sterling shooting 20. DJ Wilson is shooting 14.3%. Who told DJ to start taking threes, by the way? Ursan shooting 60, but Ursan's not going to play in the postseason. So of the guys who are actually going to get postseason minutes, Dante, George Hill, Marvin Williams, and Pat. Pat is the only one with a respectable three-point percentage at 41% right now. He actually looks really good after just beating COVID. So there's one takeaway. Pat's the best player on the Bucks bench. The second biggest takeaway, and they're both rather insignificant, is that Brook Lopez can carry when he needs to. We saw this game one against the Raptors in the Eastern Conference Finals last year, but he had his biggest game of the year against the Mavs, and it was in a losing effort. He had 34 points, and he's a blast to watch because the Lopez brothers are a blast to watch. But Bud cannot be scared to play through him because there are going to be games where they get a favorable matchup. The Mavericks aren't necessarily great interior defensively. Like, Porzingis is big and strong, but you can push him around. By big and strong, I mean big. I don't mean strong. He's more of a finesse player. Brooke can get down there and body him, and he did. Bud should be willing to play through him. Those are probably the two takeaways. Pat Connaughton's your best player on the bench, and Brooke Lopez can carry in a favorable matchup. Bud's kind of 0 for 2 in that department. Should have played through Brooke more against the Rockets and didn't. Probably should have played through Brooke more in overtime uh, on Saturday night, but Bud, I think, is just looking to get out of here not injured. Here's the biggest takeaway and why I, I you shouldn't be concerned at all. The Bucs lost on Saturday, not really because of anything that Bud did or because of anything that the Bucs players did. They lost because they got March Madness. That's what happened. They got March Madness by Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic had his best game as an NBA player. 36, 19 assists, and 14 rebounds. He was sensational right down to the end of the game. He was their closer. He was amazing. That was his best game as an NBA player. And you know what? That happens. Sometimes you run into a player that's that great. It mostly happens in March Madness. When all the teams are playing to stay alive and the best players are on display, happened to Marquette right against Murray State and John Morant. I I said it last spring. I was like, yeah, Marquette lost. They ran into John Morant. It happens. In that game, Marquette lost 83-64 to Murray State. And John Moran had 17 points, 16 assists, 11 rebounds, which is, other than the scoring numbers being drastically different, actually a pretty similar stat line and performance to the one Luca had. They ran into a great player. They got March Madness. It happens. Over the course of a seven-game series, those things typically tend to balance out. But in one-game settings, like in single elimination games in March, college basketball, it happens. Sometimes you run into a great player. Steph Curry, Davidson, 2008 with the Badgers. Same thing. They got March Madness. Big deal. They play the Raptors tonight. Nobody's playing their good players. Don't pull your hair out over this game. Watch the Brewers instead. Bucks over here on WKTY. Brewers on our sister station, WIZM. Enjoy both games tonight. We'll be back to talk about it tomorrow. Zach Heilprin from The Zone in Madison is going to join us to talk Badgers and college football as well. Enjoy tonight. Be back tomorrow. Same time, same place here on the Wisco Sports Show. Talk to you then.